Good morning, church. My name is Dave. I am the manager of ministry operations here at Summit Crossing Limestone. I am so thankful, as always, for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. Our lead teaching pastor transition is almost at an end. We are excited that Pastor Bill Mogzig will be here in a few weeks, uh, and we get to uh, welcome him and his family. Amen. Praise the Lord. Looking forward to it. Um, that's it. So clearly, I'm not the guy that is normally going to be up here. So um, my my normal disclaimer: if I just totally blow it, please come back and give us another shot. Um, if you're visiting with us and you'd like uh, more information about how to connect further with us, we would love to hear from you. We are a community church. We believe in gospel community. We believe the church is not a weekly event, but a people. Uh, on Sunday mornings, where the church gathered, and Monday through Saturday, where the church scattered. Uh, Jesus has made us family with one another, so we seek to love one another well and serve our neighbors well together on Jesus' mission together. So if you'd like more information about who we are and how you can plug in, please just fill out one of the green Connect cards in the seat back in front of you and drop it in one of the offering boxes at the back of the worship center, and one of our staff will get back with you soon with more information. Uh, if you're listening online, uh, you can visit us at mysc3.org and click I'm new and fill out the digital connect card there, and we'll respond to that soon to help you get more connected. Well, this morning, we are continuing our teaching series through the Gospel of John. We typically teach on Sunday mornings through a, a whole book of the Bible or a section of Scripture, uh, taking it a chunk at a time and just going through it as it comes. We love doing that for a lot of reasons, but one is uh, because it helps us see more of what God has said in His Word rather than only teaching on our personal favorite passages and skipping over the more challenging ones. Well, this week we happen to find ourselves in one of the more challenging passages uh, as we finish John chapter 6. I was joking to somebody before the first service that uh, I've, I've got the last 20, chap 20 verses, excuse me, whew, I've got the last 20 verses of John chapter 6, and maybe two of them you would ever see cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere. Uh, the others you definitely wouldn't unless it was some kind of weird joke. Um, but, and yet, uh, you know, and it's fine, it's, it is funny, but, um, I, don't, I certainly also don't want to minimize the importance of the Word of God. Like, just because you wouldn't put it on a pillow doesn't mean we don't need this. Like, God's Word is spirit and life, and it is an unspeakable privilege. Hundreds of languages around the world have no Scripture in their language. So, very thankful for the opportunity anytime we can open up God's Word and study it together. The other challenge about this passage is that, <clears throat> well, one other, uh, is that it happens to be the tail end of a dialogue between Jesus and this large crowd of people. So, if we try to take it out of context and just look at these last 20 verses, it won't make nearly as much sense. So, we're going to back up and get the whole context in front of us. Over the last several weeks, we've kind of looked at chapter 6 in chunks, and now we're going to get a bird's eye view of the whole thing so that we can see how this last section fits. So, at the beginning of chapter 6, quick recap, uh, John has contrasted for us these two different scenes that frame the rest of the chapter. In the first scene, Jesus miraculously fed untold thousands of people. He mentioned there were 5,000 men there, but we know there were women and children there as well. So, possibly anywhere from around 15 to 24,000 people is what scholars estimate were there. He took five barley loaves, little loaves, and two fish and multiplied them miraculously to feed this whole huge crowd until there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. The crowd sees this miracle and they are thrilled. They're like, Jesus, we love you and we have got a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, 
John says they wanted to take Jesus by force and make Him king. So, in response, Jesus, although He is king of the universe, withdraws from them and goes up back on the mountain by Himself. Scene number two, that night, the disciples are in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, not just the twelve apostles, but we'll also see that there was some unspecified number of other disciples of Jesus who were with them. Uh, And as they row across the sea, they get caught in a, a strong and dangerous storm. Jesus, astonishingly, walks across the water toward the boat, not on the side. He's, he's walking on water in the storm. Clearly, they're afraid. It looks like a ghost or something. But Jesus calls out to them and says, it is I. Do not be afraid. In the, in the original language that could be translated, fear not, I am. I am who I am. The Old Testament name for God Himself God, God, the psalmist says, makes His footprints in the sea. So, Jesus is showing them in this like, I am the Word made flesh. I am God incarnate. I am the one who rescues you. The, the disciples gladly receive Him into the boat, John says, and John writes, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, we don't have to row anymore. We don't have to strive anymore. We've received Jesus and we have arrived So, John contrasts these two scenes to teach us about faith in Jesus. He's saying, if we try to use Jesus to reach our own goals, we won't get Jesus. He withdraws from that. But if we gladly receive Jesus Himself on His terms, we get the real Jesus, and in receiving Him, we have arrived where we need to be. We've been rescued from death, and we've made it safely to shore. I love that song that we sing. So, next day, day two, right after this happens, the crowd runs around the edge of the sea, where's Jesus? They find Him in Capernaum, and this extended dialogue begins. And Jesus says, listen, y'all are just here for the food. Don't work for the food that perishes, the food that rots and runs out. Work instead for the food that endures to eternal life. The crowd says, well, we do like miracle bread, so what's that work that we should do to get it? Jesus says, the work of Him who sent me is that you believe in the one whom He has sent. So it's not working, it's not rowing, it's not striving, it's believing. Receive me into the boat. Believe in me. The crowd says, okay, well, and you can tell they're still angling for this miracle bread because they read that in the Old Testament manna from heaven and they're like, oh, this is, we want that and this was kind of like that, but can we see it fall from heaven? That would be cool. So they say, okay, well, based on what sign should we believe in you? They just saw an incredible sign based on what sign, so that we may see it and believe in you, they said. What's the sign? Bread from heaven? Jesus responds, essentially, yes, but not like you think. The real bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, in the original, the He who, He who comes down from heaven could also be translated that which comes down from heaven. So, it makes sense that they are still thinking that He's talking about physical bread like they're talking about physical bread. The crowd says, sir, give us this bread always, like give it to us every day, let it fall from heaven every day to give us life, like our forefathers ate manna in the wilderness every day. And then what follows is this back and forth dialogue where Jesus insists on telling them things that they don't want to hear. And that's the chapter I'm given to preach is, you know, Jesus tells us things we don't want to hear naturally. Um, First He says, The blessing that Jesus offers in this life is spiritual. 
The blessing that Jesus offers in this life is spiritual, not mainly physical. Now, I got to put a disclaimer on that. Yes, every physical thing that we have in this life is a gift from God. The Bible says that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So it's not that the world is bad. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy the world. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy God as you enjoy the world. Of course you should. You should. But what they're after is the Messiah is here. We want the special blessing of the Messiah, and they want it to be something tangible. They think they want the supernatural blessing of God that the Messiah will bring, so they say, give us the bread from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. You want the bread from heaven? I am the bread from heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he pivots from talking about eating bread to talking about coming to me and believing in me. So right from the outset of this conversation, there is a, a clear metaphor on the record, right? Jesus is obviously not physically bread, but He is like bread in the sense that coming to Him and believing in Him gives you spiritual life, just like eating bread gives you physical life. So He's offering not physical bread and life, but spiritual bread and life. The blessing that Jesus offers in this life is spiritual, not mainly physical. Next, well, he says that and they didn't want to hear it. They wanted their kingdom now. Let's take him by force and make him king now. They wanted their tangible prosperity now. If, we, if you rain bread down from heaven every day, then we don't have to work anymore. We're going to be the richest country in the world and we'll kick out the Romans. We'll have everything we wanted in this life. They didn't want to hear that the blessing He brings in this world is primarily spiritual. Next, Jesus tells them, number two, that we're spiritually helpless. It's not an easy thing to hear, but we, according to Jesus, are spiritually helpless because of our sin. They said, show us the sign of bread from heaven so that we may see and believe in you. And Jesus says, I am the sign of bread from heaven, but, verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. You have seen the bread from heaven and you don't believe. This is the sign. I'm the sign. I just did a sign and you want more. There's something wrong here. There's a short in the system somewhere. You're looking for the wrong sign and you're unwilling to accept the real sign from God. Jesus is telling them that they're spiritually blind, but they don't want to hear it. The light of the world was right in front of them, but they couldn't see Him. They were spiritually needy, spiritually helpless. They didn't want to hear that they could somehow miss out on God's saving work. He goes on, Jesus says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So God is active in the world, Jesus is saying. He's working out His will. And they did not want to hear that it could even be possible that they could miss out on that. They felt entitled to whatever special work God is doing in the world. They felt, okay, well, surely we are the people that are going to get it because we're the good guys. We're the chosen people. We're the right country. We've got all the Old Testament talking about us. They felt entitled to God's special work in the world. So, already disappointed that He's not given the bread, already disappointed He's not giving the kingdom, already disappointed about all these things, they find an excuse for rejecting Jesus. 
They nitpick one thing he said, and their complaint reveals this contentious spiritual condition. They come right out and say that they don't want to hear, thirdly, that Jesus is vastly greater than us. Jesus claims to be vastly greater than us. He has the audacity to say that He is vastly greater than us. And we are, this is what's, why this is written. He's showing us this is who we are naturally. We are naturally unwilling to hear it. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? So the crowd starts grumbling to each other. This guy is starting to claim some pretty high and mighty stuff about himself, uh, but he's one of us. He's a Galilean. We're Galileans. We've got this sense of pride in our group identity. You know, we're, we're good people. He's one of us. We know his mama. How's he going to stand there and tell us that he came down from heaven? He's not better than us. He's not above us. If he's going to be over us, it's going to be because we make him king. There's pride at work here. Jesus responds, don't grumble. I'm not picking on you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'm not saying you're a worse kind of sinner than somebody else. I'm saying everybody is spiritually helpless, not just you. No one can believe in me without first experiencing a miraculous work of God, drawing you to me, giving you new birth so you can see me as I really am. We've been seeing this throughout the book of John, John chapter 3. The, uh, the Spirit blows where it wishes. You know, you, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with all who are born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you need to see by the Spirit who I really am. I really am the sent one. I really am the anointed one of God sent from heaven. I'm not flaunting my greatness over you arrogantly. I came here to serve you and to save you. Whoever comes to me, I will raise him up. Victory over death at the last day. This is who I am. This is what I came to do. So, implicitly, come to me. Believe in me. I'm offering myself to you. Receive eternal life. Side note, while, while, I think, while this crowd does walk away, I, I tend to think from reading the book of Acts that probably on the other side of the cross when the Spirit is poured out, that probably many of these people do come to faith. Can't prove that. But God's grace overcomes our sinful resistance. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So Jesus says, my father has to draw you or you can't come to Jesus. But at the same time, He teaches throughout this passage and the rest of the New Testament, we have real wills and we make real choices and we are really responsible to repent and believe. Both of those truths are taught repeatedly in the Bible. Our total inability, God's got to initiate it. He's got to draw us and give us to Jesus. And at the same time, whosoever will, come. Like, it's, it's a choice. You're responsible for what you do with this. How does God's sovereignty over all things, including His rule and reign over us, fit with human responsibility and real human decisions? If you can figure it out, I'd love to buy your book. 
we don't fully know the answer to that, just like we don't fully know how God can be one God and three distinct persons at the same time. But the Bible teaches it, and by grace, we don't have to trip over it even if we can't fully understand it. It is natural, apart from grace, to say, whatever you want to say, Jesus, if I can't fully understand it, I'm going to reject it. If I can't neatly fit it into a chart or a diagram, I refuse to believe that it's true. That's what happened next with this crowd. Jewish theology, really interestingly, Jewish theology already uh, included both God's total sovereignty over all things and human responsibility. The Bible says God, God reigns and no one thwarts His will. He always accomplishes His will. And yet, we're really sinners and we're really… so it's both there. But they found a new reason to reject Jesus as He went on. The fourth thing that they didn't want to hear is that, essentially, we're not as wise as we think. Apart from grace, apart from God opening our eyes, we are not as spiritually wise as we think we are. Jesus said, verse 51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now we're at the passage for today. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The disciples were probably thinking, well, Jesus, if you hadn't killed your chances with the crowd before, I'm pretty sure that did it right there. Uh, he, he makes this statement, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the crowd starts arguing not against Jesus, but with one another. They just start disputing among themselves, John says. That word in the text means to debate or to argue, even fiercely. Some commentators uh, have, think they might have even been near to, to come into blows against each other while they argue over the meaning of this. Now, they did not think that he was being literal. They understood how metaphor works. These were the people of the Psalms and the prophets, where God is said to be a rock, a fortress, a strong tower, even a man of war. In the Psalms and prophets, it says that God has a strong hand and a mighty arm, a mouth and eyes, even feathers and wings. But of course, He doesn't literally have any of those things. God is spirit. They're metaphors that God is our protector, that He has all power and understanding, that He reveals Himself to us and cares for us. They knew that. That's, they, they, they read that stuff on a daily basis. So a fight breaks out in the crowd over the meaning of the metaphor, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So maybe one camp said, well, I think maybe he means that uh, his death will somehow be life-giving food for the nation. And another group probably responded, well, that's dumb. If he's dead, he can't do anything for anybody. And maybe a third group said, well, I think he means his bodily life is bread for uh, bread from God, like maybe he'll spend his life working to provide life to the nation. Like right now, the nation is dead under Roman occupation, and Jesus is going to give the nation life and raise us back up. There's images like that in the Old Testament of, of the nation of Israel. Uh, but they're getting mad at each other, going back and forth, arguing, and trying to prove themselves right and the others wrong. They wanted to believe that they are wise. The craziest thing about this situation is that nobody stops to ask Jesus. They're too proud to admit that they don't understand. No, I think it's this. You're wrong. I think it's this. You're wrong. Why not just ask Him? 
They're not willing to stop and ask directions from the guy who knows. They didn't want a wisdom from above that's beyond their ability to naturally understand without grace and help. They wanted a message that fit with what they already thought. I've got, it's assumed, I've got to be able to figure this out. I'm smart. I'm wise. God gives me something, I'm, I just take it and I run with it. Spiritual pride. So Jesus, surprisingly, instead of clarifying what He meant, throws gas on the fire. He doubles down on the metaphor. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my body is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the, Father, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the, fathers, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. What in the world? <laughs> what the crowd is like, wow, are you kidding me? Why? The disciples are looking at each other nervously like, who have we been following? What is He talking about? Now, Whatever else we can say about these verses, in the context of the whole conversation, we have to say that Jesus' words here were clearly intelligible. It may have been challenging to hear, but it made sense. Maybe not as much sense as they wanted, but it made some sense on the surface of it. It's obviously a metaphor. They knew that. They didn't get upset earlier in the conversation when He said that He's the bread of life and you've got to eat that bread to have life. They didn't get upset about that. They got upset that he said he's from heaven, like he's qualitatively different from us. They're like, okay, we'll figure out the bread thing later, but who do you think you are? They weren't upset about the metaphor initially. It's only getting harder to hear now because Jesus is making it more graphic. But just about everything Jesus said in this section has a direct parallel to something he just said a second ago. So what is it what does this kind of eating and drinking mean according to Jesus in this immediate passage? Well, five times already Jesus said it means to come to me. Five other times already He said it means to believe in me. So what does it mean to metaphorically eat His flesh? It means come to Jesus on His terms, believing in Him for eternal life and for satisfaction for your soul. Just like bread feeds your body, Jesus feeds your soul. He, he spelled it out for them already. Before He gave them the hard part, He gave them the answers. Not only was the meaning intelligible, easy to, possible to be understood, so was the graphic imagery, at least to an extent. The graphic imagery was able to be understood even to some extent. So, John already told us at the beginning of the chapter, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, right? Passover looms large in the uh, Israelite mind at this time. John already told us that. And the crowd was already looking at Jesus in this chapter as He provides bread in the wilderness for a multitude, and they're already thinking, Moses, new Moses, new manna. Maybe this is part of a new exodus, new Israel maybe. It would make sense to hear Jesus and think, new Passover lamb? John the Baptist famously had, had proclaimed Jesus Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. During the Passover meal, 
They would remember God rescuing them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses with all these edible symbols. There was bread and there were herbs and a Passover lamb and cups of wine. And they would eat the flesh of the Passover lamb that died in their place. And some rabbis for a long time had written that they were symbolically drinking the blood of grapes as they were drinking the Passover wine. Because the Passover was all about being saved from death through death. It's the death of this spotless lamb that rescues you from the judgment of God that is passing outside, the judgment of death. So, they had this category in their head. It was intelligible, but at the same time, Jesus is clearly being provocative. It's clearly supposed to sound disturbing, and it does. Everyone's got to be wondering why, but nobody asks them. They just leave. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus spoke so unusually here to expose their pride, their inability to come to Him, their unwillingness to humble themselves and listen, to show how unable we are to come to Him apart from a miracle of the Spirit, because He keeps saying that. Now, remember, they had seen Jesus powerfully heal the sick. There's no antibiotics, there's no surgery. Jesus says it, and they're healed all over the place. They had seen Jesus miraculously multiply a kid's meal into a market full of food. He seems to have some kind of incredible, unusual degree of power and authority in this world. It would make sense to ask Him why He's talking like this, but they don't. He's already said enough that they don't want to hear, so they leave. Pride made them unwilling to truly ask in order to understand. And not just the crowd, but many of His own disciples who just saw Him walk on water. Verse 60, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted Him by my Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Jesus says, you think that's offensive? For me to talk about my flesh and blood, wait till you see me ascended to where I came from. Because my path back to glory goes through the cross. And you're not just going to hear me talk about giving my flesh and blood. You're going to see my flesh given on a cross. You're going to see my blood poured out on the cross. And if you want tangible kingdom building power and strength, if that's what coming to Jesus is for, is to have your kingdom now, you're going to take offense at the cross. The way of Jesus is not the way of the world. It's not the way of dominance and power and control. The way of Jesus in this world before the resurrection is the way of self-sacrifice and seeming defeat. The end of chapter 6 looks like a total defeat for Jesus. looks like a shame for Him. Nearly everybody abandons Him. But we know the rest of the story. We know chapter 6 is not meant to be understood on its own. Jesus did not come 
the first time to judge the world and rule an earthly kingdom. He was on a mission to go to the cross and die as a sacrifice for the life of the world, to give His flesh and pour out His blood so that you and I could receive Him and have eternal life. So He spoke such difficult words here, not only to expose our pride, but ultimately to reveal His love. Get this. Because to go to the cross and die for us, He had to drive away this volunteer army. He had to be rejected by enough of His own people that when it came time for Him to be crucified, they wouldn't all pick up swords and fight to try to rescue Him. I mean, He could have just with a word squashed that and put it down, but this was His plan to make it look like a total defeat and to then flip it with the resurrection. Isaiah said, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I believe Jesus said such shocking statements here, not only to expose our pride, but also ultimately to show His love for us. It was loving of Jesus to intentionally embrace rejection, leading Him to the cross. It was loving of Jesus to tell us truth that we don't naturally want to hear. And it was loving of Him to expose our pride, lastly, so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in Him alone. So we, we wouldn't, tr- wouldn't say, I'm, I'm here because I'm enough. We would trust ultimately in Him. Verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter had answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? If we walk away from Jesus, what, who is there to walk to? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That faith sure looks like a miracle in this context. And that's the point. That's what he's been saying. That's what he's been showing. Do you believe in Jesus? According to him, it's not because you were wise enough. It's not because you were spiritually good enough. It's not because you were someone great. It's because of Jesus being great. According to Jesus, if you believe in Him, it's because the Father gave you to Jesus. The Son gave His flesh and blood for you, and the Spirit gave you life through the message of the gospel. Joey preached on that last week. If you missed that last Sunday, I encourage you to listen to it online at mysc3.org. It was beautiful. Our assurance is rock solid because God is glorious. God willed it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applied it to us. So we, are, we can have assurance of salvation. Absolutely. Because of who Jesus is, not because of who we are. Jesus has the words of eternal life. When the Spirit of God changes your heart, one thing He does is cause you to love the teachings of Jesus that you didn't want to hear before. It's this miracle flip that we see in these 11 disciples. Now we're glad to hear that the blessing Jesus offers us is spiritual because we know that we're spiritually needy. We need Him. We want Him. 
We're content to wait for a physical resurrection later and a physical blessing in the world later because we've already got our greatest treasure now in Jesus. Now, by the Spirit, we're glad to hear that we're spiritually needy because it's the truth and because He graciously meets us in our need. If we get Jesus by knowing our need and crying out to Him, then yes, don't hide from me the fact that I'm spiritually needy. I would rather have a, a, diff, a challenging reality than, an unpleasant nonsense, than a pleasant nonsense. Tell me I'm needy. Tell me I'm helpless if you're the one who helps me. Now, by the Spirit, we're glad to hear that Jesus is vastly greater than us because we see His greatness and we're in awe of Him, and He thrills our soul. His greatness is what we were made to see and be satisfied in. We weren't made to be so infatuated with ourselves as some imprint, like, that's not going to satisfy you forever. You were made to see God and every moment see more of Him and say, I can't believe I get you. Your wonders know no end, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So yes, tell me Jesus is vastly greater, because that's the only thing that's going to satisfy me. In the same way, we're glad to hear that we're not naturally as wise as we thought we were, because now we have the joy of rejoicing not in a small treasure like our own wisdom, but rejoicing totally in Jesus and the infinite wisdom of His cross. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? So as Christians, we just want to keep coming back over and over again to His Word, seeing His cross, seeing His glory, and feasting our souls on Jesus Himself. And you can do that for the first time today. If you've been coming to Jesus for other stuff, and maybe one day down the road you could be tempted to, de- tempted to leave because it's not panning out in this life like you thought, You can come to Him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him. And you will find that God has given you to the Son. And you can have assurance. Many of you know the story of Gideon from the Old Testament book of Judges. Israel was enslaved to the Midianites. And God called Gideon to deliver them. There's a lot of parallels between Gideon and Jesus. I was excited to share it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to fast forward to one main one. He was a deliverer, like Jesus is a deliverer, but Gideon calls for an army, and 32,000 Israelites show up ready to fight. But God tells Gideon, that's too many. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, you would expect them to say, no, this is too few. You need more people for me to, no, 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 for me to deliver them into your hand, you got too many guys. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. So God dwindled down this army from 32,000 to 10,000, and then from 10,000 again down to only 300 people. And God essentially says, there. Now that's a ridiculously small enough crowd so that I alone should get the glory from, any, from that kind of impossible victory. Centuries later, Jesus, the true and better Gideon, drives away the crowds so that He alone would get the glory for our salvation. Jesus was willingly crucified, not with a remnant of 300 men by His side, but totally alone. And as He gave His flesh and His blood for us, He paid the sin debt that we owed to God so that we could believe in Him and have eternal life. Let's believe in Him. Let's keep believing in Him. 
Let's take our rightful place of humility before Him and say, you've done the whole thing and I praise you for it. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, He will soon raise us up on the last day to be with Him forever. So until then, let's walk humbly with Him and walk humbly before our neighbors and share with them the word of life, the bread of life. The gospel is already offensive to the flesh. Jesus doesn't call us to add offense to it. In fact, the Apostle Paul teaches that the way we follow Jesus in this, now that we interpret this through the lens of the cross, now that Jesus made it really hard so that people would walk away on His way to the cross and He would be the only one to get credit for our salvation, now we, we don't follow Him by trying to heap up offense and make it harder for people. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In context, this is how. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, not because I'm a people pleaser and I like everybody to, to like me necessarily, but I seek the advantage of many that they may be saved. Meaning, if you want to share the gospel with an international person, you're probably going to take your shoes off at the door instead of saying, well, no, thank you very much. I like to keep my shoes on if it's all right with you. Like, let's get small little offenses out of the way. Show them that we care. If you're talking to somebody with a radically different worldview, our job is not there to be there and, and scoff and mock and, and tell them, well, that's stupid. How dare you? But rather to sympathize with their blindness. We were blind too. And to say, I'm not excusing what you're saying, but I do understand where you're coming from given what you assume. Let, can I share with you who Jesus is and how He challenged my assumptions and He opened my eyes and He changed the way I think? Can I show you that He's better than what you're living for? Can I show you the beauty of Jesus? And, and we can be winsome and kind. Jesus was actually loving these people as he mysteriously drove them away because ultimately he was going to pour out his spirit and draw many multitudes to himself from every tribe and tongue. So let's join him and let him work through us. Let's pray. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? Your very words give us life. You by your spirit have given us life. Even when we don't fully understand some hard sayings, we still believe in You. We still know that You are the Holy One of God. Help us to continually feast on You by faith. Help us to feast on Your Word every day. Help us by, by Your Spirit to walk humbly with You and to humbly but boldly share Your gospel with the world. Jesus, thank You for Your cross and the resurrection. We take communion now to proclaim your death until you come. Father, be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.